of these films are is the, uh, the, uh, the writer or the, the director, their image of what Jesus was like, what he should have said, the way he should have acted. You know, in some of these films, you see Jesus portrayed as a fiery revolutionary. Other films, you have him a very quiet, contemplative man. Some, he's very serious and sober. Others, he's laughing, joking, happy all the time. But again, what each of these are, are the, the writers or the directors' attempts to portray what they think, what they expected Jesus should have been like, the things he should have said and the way he should say them. I think each of us have our own images of what Jesus is like and how he should treat us and how he should talk and the things he should say in Scripture. And I don't know about you, but I find that consistently those expectations that I have as I walk through life with him, as I read the Scriptures, consistently they get blown away. They get replaced by some reality. That he doesn't do the things I expect him to do. He surprises me and a lot of times confuses me. A picture that has helped me to kind of hold on to this and put this together is a picture that C.S. Lewis draws in, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. He has Lucy, who's a young girl, who's about to meet the great lion Aslan, who is Christ. And she's afraid, and so she asks Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, Is he safe? Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. You see, Jesus is not a tame lion who will meet our expectations, who will follow our script about what he should do, what he should say, how he should treat us, how our life should go. And as we look at Him, and we look at Him in Scripture, and as we experience Him in our walk, He's constantly, consistently blowing our expectations apart. But as He does this, as we look at Him, we still see, though He is not tame, He is good. And as we look at Him, we see what real goodness is. We see what real love is about. And see, that's what we've been wanting to do through the book of Mark, is take a look at Jesus. See what he really said, what he is really like. Learn from him rather than from our preconceptions. Last week you guys studied through the first half of Mark 7. Uh, Brian led you through that study. heard a lot of good things about that study. You looked at legalism and what it does to us. I think for me the bottom line with these Pharisees was that they were sitting back critiquing They're watching Jesus to see if he met their expectations, if he said the things they thought he should say and the way he should say and conducted himself like they thought he, they should, or thought he should do. See, they weren't participating. They weren't involved with Jesus. They were sitting back, critiquing. You see, these Pharisees had lost sight of, of God and his heart for people and had begun to focus on, on creating a nice little system that explained everything and and tolerated no new information. They had completely lost sight of love. And as a result, they had lost all connection with God. What you had last week was Jesus' explanation of what is wrong with legalism. This week, what he does is demonstrates to us what should be there instead. 
So look at the second half of Mark chapter 7, starting with about verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre. And when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it, yet he could not escape notice. But after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he was saying to her, Let the children be satisfied first, for it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the, ta- <coughs> under the table feed on the children's crumbs. And he said to her, Because of this answer, go your way. The demon has gone out of your daughter. And going back to her home, she found the child laying on the bed, the demon having departed. What's going on here is Jesus is still trying to get away to rest. Things had gotten too intense in Israel. The uh, Pharisees were opposing him, and that opposition was growing more intense. The people wanted to crown him king. And he knew that things were prematurely headed toward the showdown that he would come. But it wasn't time yet. So in order to get away from this, and I think in order to teach the apostles some things they needed to learn, Jesus takes off. He leaves Galilee. He leaves the Israel, Israelite territory, heads about 40 miles to the north west up to the Phoenician city of Tyre. Now this area is called uh, Syro-Phoenicia because this is a Phoenician city. That's a, the Phoenicians were a Canaanite people who were there before the Israelites even came in. And this was in the Roman district province of Syria. So it's Syrian Phoenicia, Syro-Phoenicia. Tyre had been a very powerful independent seaport from before Moses' day. The Israelites had never been able to conquer it. In fact, even under Roman control, they were allowed to govern themselves. They had their own kings, their own uh, economy with their own coins and their own gods. In fact, their religion was a Canaanite religion and it was a particularly despicable Religion involving human sacrifice and sexual activity with worshipers and priestesses. Well, Jesus is up in this area to rest. He goes into this house hoping nobody will notice, but they noticed. They saw him. They recognized him. Back in chapter 3, we're told that a bunch of people from this area had come down to Galilee when Jesus was ministering there. Maybe some of them recognized him. But anyway, this woman, as soon as she hears that Jesus is there, she comes, runs, and falls at his feet, begging him to cast the demon out of her daughter. We're told explicitly at this point that this woman is a Syrophoenician. She is a Canaanite, one of these these very Gentiles that the Israelites were to have nothing to do with because their religion was so despicable. God told them to avoid these people. So for Jesus to have anything to do with this woman would have been to make him unclean. So he appropriately ignores her. We're told she kept asking for him to to deliver her daughter. Apparently Jesus ignored her at first. And when he did respond to her, what does he do? He implies that she is a dog. Now this is... The appropriate response for a religious Jew. These Gentiles are dogs in their opinion. So Jesus was acting like we would expect a religious Jew to act. But is that how we expect Jesus to act? 
Or is that how we expect Jesus to talk? This is not politically correct language. This is not socially conscientious language. This is, in fact, rude and insensitive and bigoted and perhaps even sexist. Had a conversation with a friend of mine last week who comes from a fairly radically different theological orientation than I do. And he was telling me that he accepts these passages at face value, that this shows that Jesus was, in fact, rude and sexist. And in fact, the entire whole New Testament reflects a sexist and parochial attitude. We can't expect these guys 2,000 years ago to be nearly as progressive as we are now. Fortunately, the Holy Spirit has moved us beyond the attitudes that are reflected in the New Testament. But you see, the problem with that uh, hermeneutic, that, that way of interpreting, is that it gives up before we really understand our Lord, before we really see Him as He is. When we come across a passage like this that slaps our sensibilities, we should realize it's intended to. It's intended to wake us up, to cause us to think, to cause us to ask, what's going on here? And to look deeper. And if we give up before going through that process and see what's really going on, we'll miss the deeper understanding of who our Lord is and His goodness. If we sit in judgment on the Scriptures rather than letting them sit in judgment on us, we will end up like the self-righteous Pharisees rather than like this strong, wise Phoenician woman. So what is going on here? Uh, some people try to soften Jesus' words by pointing out that the word she uses for, or that he uses for dog is really a lap dog, a pet dog, rather than a mangy street dog that the Jews usually used for uh, a uh, Gentile. But I don't see how calling this woman and her daughter any kind of dog is anything other than an insult, especially when he was using it to put her off, to, to try to avoid granting her request. You see, he is basically saying to this woman, listen, I've got important people to deal with who need my time. Why should I bother with you? I've got the children, the Jews, who need my time. So anyway, you look at it, this was a put off and a put down. Well, what's going on here? Well, personally, I think the disciples are being set up. You see, as I said before, this is the way a religious Jew would have responded. This is the way the Pharisees would have responded. This is the way they've been wanting Jesus to respond all along. Why they were so frustrated when he didn't respond like this. When he didn't obey the rules and fit the expectations. And I think the disciples were right here along with him saying, Yeah, finally, this is right. Let's go with it. And and Jesus looked at this woman, and he saw a woman who was strong, who was secure, who was spunky. And he chose to use this encounter to show his disciples what a proper response to him should look like. This woman was to show what faith looks like. Her response when Jesus said that it's not good to take the children's food and give it to the dogs, her response was, yes, Lord. She didn't say, you sexist jerk. Where do you get off talking to me like that? How dare you? And I think with the same twinkle in her eye that she saw in Jesus' eye, she said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs got to eat. Even even, uh, the, the dogs feed on the crumbs. Don't take anything away from the children. Just give me what's left over. There's plenty of you 
to go around. You see, she wasn't going to give up. She wasn't going to be put off. She wasn't going to take offense and huff away. She was going to stay in there. And I think this delighted Jesus. You know, what's going on with this woman? What gave her the, the fortitude, the ability to respond this way? Well, a couple of things. First of all, her little girl was hurting. Her little girl was demon-possessed. And we see other places in Scripture that that is a horrible thing. Like causing convulsions, throwing the child into the fire or into water, trying to drown it. Her girl was suffering and she wanted to deal with this. And she wasn't going to give up. And I think often our desire, our hunger for what Jesus can give is far too weak. We don't really realize how needy we are. How, how much we're missing out on by not walking more closely with our Lord. How much our little sins destroy us and destroy people around us. And as a result, we don't seek the Lord like this. And if He doesn't respond immediately... And exactly the way we wanted him to, expected him to respond, we huff off, empty-handed and bitter. But not this woman. She was determined to get what she came for. And what gave her the perseverance was that she somehow knew. She really believed that Jesus would do it, or that he could do it, and that he would do it. See, this is the essence of of faith, to come to the Lord in need, admitting our need, and then believing that He is able and that He is good. And this woman did this in the face of, of what seemed like indifference, the face of what seemed like rejection. She trusted Him, even when He didn't seem to care when it didn't feel like he cared. This is what faith is all about. Trusting him when it doesn't seem like he cares. Trusting that he's able. Trusting that he's good. I don't know about you, but one of the things that I've had to work through in my relationship with the Lord is his refusal to fit my expectations, to follow my plans. You know, sometimes I swear he is messing with my mind. Things all go wrong at the worst possible moment. And I say, God, gun it, why? And sometimes it's little things. Like uh, last month we bought my uh, daughter Holly a new bike. We have been real busy over the last couple months. months and we're going to go bike riding in the evening. That will take advantage of the time we do have together. And we'll be together as a family. And it will be great. And I'm not kidding. I must have changed probably seven or eight tires every week. Here I want to be this great father, spending this time with my family, and I'm in my garage swearing at a tire, and never seeing my kids. You know, a little, oops, a little help here. <laughs> a little, little help here, please, God. But sometimes it's not nearly so trivial. I uh, had some friends who were going through a prolonged period of financial difficulty, uh, they, his business had been on, been on the verge of bankruptcy month after month. And finally it went under, and it was dismal. They, it took about a year to work through all of this. Things just went from bad to worse. But after about a year, things were starting to look up. They were starting to see light at the end of the tunnel. They were starting to see the possibility of a new chance, a new start. One evening, driving to visit some friends, or some relatives actually, a guy coming the other direction, fell asleep at the wheel, crossed over the center line, hit them, 
killed the husband and left the wife and little boy. Man, that's not the way it's supposed to happen. I mean, they'd been trusting God through all of this garbage, all of this difficulty. They had held on. God is good. God can take care of us. And they had held on. And then when they finally get a, get a little relief, this happens. Now, why? We, we make perfectly logical deals with God. Perfectly logical expectations. But He never seems to follow them. You know, if you're a, a, a student and you're a Christian and you're trusting God, seems like you should get good grades. What happens? Or, or if you're trusting God, you should have a boyfriend. I mean, maybe you haven't been out for a couple of months, maybe a couple of years. Finally, some guy asks you out, and he turns out to be a jerk. Or he never calls back, and he say, Why? I've been trusting you, God. I've been holding on to you. Are you going to the hospital and you're convinced God won't let my father die? But he does. And all you're left with is the question, why? And these are times when we can smack up against the fact that Jesus isn't a tame lion to do our bidding, to meet our expectations. He is the king. He doesn't do what we tell him to do. But these are also times of profound faith when we can't answer the question, why? All we can do is hold on to the truth, to the fact that He is able and He is good. And if we hold on long enough, we will see His goodness. What we have in our story here is a compressed picture of what we're talking about. You see, this woman held on to her conviction that Jesus was able and that Jesus was good, even in the face of what seemed like indifference seemed like felt like rejection from him and she held on and i think this delighted jesus we're not told but i think after he heard her response his face lit up in a big smile and he shook his head happily and sent her home to her healed daughter this is exactly what faith looks like this is the response jesus longed for among the people of israel but it's the exact opposite response he got from the religious leaders. They sat back. They critiqued. They evaluated whether he fit their expectations, whether he followed their rules. They were self-sufficient. They, they, all they cared about was their system and their structure, not about people. And they didn't respond. They didn't relate to him at all. They were cold humorless and dead. This Gentile woman, this Phoenician woman, on the other hand, she didn't play all of these religious games. She didn't know any of the games. She just came straight at Jesus, dealing with Him on His terms, not demanding that He come on her terms, dealing with Him on His terms, trusting Him, responding to Him, submitting to Him. See, this is the difference between religion and relationship. Religion causes us to step back and to try to build a nice little system and to evaluate everyone and everything or whether it fits that little system. Focuses on these rules and, and, and on these activities. While a relationship focuses on responding, focuses on trust, focuses on love. The, the results of one 
is joyless, humorless, spiritual death. The, res- the result of the other is spunky, vital, spiritual life. Unfortunately, those of us who've been believers for a while and have begun to learn, uh, grow in knowledge, learn what the Scriptures say, learn the Scriptures say, do this and don't do that. As this knowledge grows, we can fall into this trap of becoming more focused on definition, more focused on detail, more focused on the rules, rather than loving. Fortunately, what God does for us is He'll bring to Himself somebody who doesn't know all the rules, somebody who doesn't have any religious knowledge or experience or or training, and we'll see that person come in faith and simply love the Lord and obey Him and enjoy Him and trust Him. And it reminds those of us who've been around for a while what it's all about. Well, we've got uh, enough time for the next story, so let's go ahead and take a look at it, starting with verse 31. And again he went out from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee, which is the region of Decapolis. And they brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty, and they entreated him to lay his hand upon him. And he took him aside from the multitude by himself and put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting... He touched his tongue with the saliva, and looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, he said to them, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were open, and the impediment of his tongue was removed, and he began speaking plainly. And he gave them orders not to tell anyone, but they were, the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. And they were utterly astonished, saying, He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. Well, we're told that uh, from Tyre, Jesus looped up north, northeast to Sidon, about 30 miles, and then back down around the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee in the area of Decapolis. This is still Gentile country. Jesus doesn't seem to be in any hurry to get back into Israel. He knows that things are going to get hot when he does. And he's not ready to go back until he's ready to go to head for the cross. So this time through, through Gentile territory is the calm before the storm. Anyway, while he's in this area, they bring him a man who was deaf and who spoke with difficulty. The fact that he could speak at all probably meant that at some point he could hear enough to pick up the language and then through accident or, or illness, he lost his ability to speak. They bring this guy to Jesus in the middle of the crowd, ask him to lay his hand on him and heal him. And Jesus' response to this guy is wonderful. Takes the guy out of the crowd, sticks his fingers in the guy's ear, spits, touches his tongue, looks up to heaven, sighs, and says, Ephatha. Now, if that doesn't sound like a magic ritual, what is it? Well, it's real simple. In the house we used to live in before the one we live now, we had some neighbors who were deaf. Both the husband and wife were deaf. They spoke very well, so we could talk and, and communicate well. And they told me that the most difficult situation for someone who is deaf is to be in a crowd. One-on-one, they can watch your lips. They can, hear, they, can, they can see what you're saying, and they can communicate with you. But in a crowd, they never know who is talking. 
That's very disorienting. And they have to watch people's eyes and try to figure out who they're looking at. And once they find the person, usually they've missed half of what was being said, sometimes all of what was being said. In addition, there are no visual signs. Deafness is not visually apparent. If somebody is blind, you can usually see that in the body language. If somebody uh, is crippled, you can see that. But deafness, there is no physical sign. And as a result, in public, people are often impatient because it, it seems like this person's ignoring them. They don't know that this person can't hear and they get angry and they shout. A crowd is a horrible place for a deaf person. So what Jesus does is he takes this man off away by himself where he can talk to him one-on-one. And, and, and what's this business about sticking fingers in his ears and spitting and looking up to heaven and all of that stuff? Well, see, back then, they had not developed, I don't believe, a, a sign language for the deaf. But what Jesus is doing is talking with this man. He's telling this man what he's going to do. He's telling this man that he's going to heal his ears. And that when he spits, he's telling him he's going to heal his tongue. Back in those days, I read that they believed spittle had a curative quality. That when you cut yourself or hurt yourself, you lick it or you suck on it or you spit on it, and that helps it heal. So Jesus' spitting was not an insult. It was the sign language that he was going to heal them. Incidentally, I like the, uh, the Greek word for spit. It's ptuso. <laughs> ptuso. Sounds like spitting. Anyway, Jesus, Jesus uh, tells this guy that he's going to heal them. Heal him. And then he looks up to heaven to show the guy where the power for this healing is coming from. And he breathes out. He sighs deeply. He breathes out to tell this guy that it's the power of the Holy Spirit that is going to accomplish this healing. And then he says, Ephatha, not because there's something magic about that word. That's just the Aramaic word for to be open. And like before, when we saw Jesus quoted in Aramaic, it isn't because Aramaic is a magical language. It's because Peter, who's remembering this and telling the story to Mark, who wrote it for us, when Peter remembers this, he remembers it so vividly. He can picture the scene and he can still hear his Lord utter that word. See the man's ears open and his mouth speak freely. What we see here is the sensitivity of Jesus. He really is loving this man. Now Jesus could have just healed him in the crowd, but done with it. Just laid his hand on, boom, the guy's healed, move on. See, that's not what Jesus is about. He not only wants to heal him, he wants to communicate with him. He wants to have a relationship with him. He wants to give this man an opportunity to believe, to have faith. Jesus always gives people an opportunity to have faith, to trust him. Because spiritual healing is far more important than physical healing. And what does he give this guy an opportunity to believe? He gives this guy the opportunity to believe that he can meet his need and that he has come from the Father, and that he is operating on the power and the authority of the Father. See, that's what he wanted this guy to believe. That's what he wanted all of these people to believe. That was the message at this point. That's all they needed to know. That's all they needed to believe, that he had come from the Father, that he could meet their need, that he was operating on the authority and the power of the Father. And it doesn't say, but I'm convinced that somehow, even while he was deaf and dumb, this man registered that belief, that faith. And Jesus healed him in response to that faith. 
I'm just finishing up the story. Jesus then commands him not to tell anyone. But the more he tells them, don't tell anyone, the more they talk. Now, we're not told that the, the deaf guy, the guy that he healed, told anyone. This is the crowds who knew what happened. Again, they absolutely ignore what Jesus says. And they do what they think is best. And in, in the next chapter, we'll see some of the results of that. See, Jesus is still trying to keep things low-key, keep things quiet. He knows things will get hot soon enough. And again, we see these people disregard what he tells them to do and do what they think best. Finally, we're told that they're amazed that he did all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. Now, I don't think these Gentiles really knew the significance of what they were saying, but I think Mark did. I think that's why Mark wrote it down the way he did. That's why he phrased it this way, because this is a quote of Isaiah 35, which is the same passage that Jesus used to assure John the Baptist before his execution that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. You see, these Gentiles were observing the simple, clear facts, the very same facts that the religious people, the people of Israel, refused to see. But the evidence is overwhelming. The facts are there. This man is the Messiah who has come to usher in the age when the blind see and the deaf hear and the dumb speak. People, we are now in that age. Jesus ushered it in with a few occasions of physical healing, where the physically blind physically see, and the physically deaf physically hear, and the physically dumb physically speak. And we even today see occasions of physical healing in His name. But the greater miracle, the more important healing, is the spiritual. And we see that today there are many who are physically blind who see far more clearly than the sighted. And those who are physically deaf, whose ears are far more open to the truth than those whose physical ears work. And those, many who speak with impediments that speak far more eloquently about God's goodness and His love than the, the greatest rhetoricians and public speakers. And more importantly, we who were blind now see we see the depth and the wonder of our Lord's love. We see the goodness of His Word and His plans for us. And we who are deaf now hear. We used to be able to hear the words. Truth would come at us and we'd say, yes, I know what those words mean, but somehow it never connected, it never penetrated, it never soaked in. We'd hear the Scriptures read or explained. And it just didn't quite make sense. But now the veil has been lifted. And we who were dumb now speak. We, we used to speak with difficulty. Maybe little tiny pieces of truth all covered in the mud of confusion. But now we clearly speak the powerful, simple, profound gospel of Jesus Christ. Incidentally... Um, as an aside, 
we have resources. We want to be able to do it consistently. And once we start to be able to continue that, so if you do sign fluently, let us know at the church office. We'd love to hear from you because we'd love still to, to start that ministry. But anyway, back in our story, we see Jesus acting, responding entirely different than the Pharisees, the religious leaders, who would have been sitting back debating which of this man's many sins caused him to be deaf. Instead, Jesus gets right in there to communicate with the man, to relate to the man, not sitting back talking about the man, talking to the man, and gently, tenderly leading him to faith in himself, the Messiah. And I want you to notice the contrast between the way Jesus dealt with this man and the way Jesus dealt with the Phoenician woman. With the Phoenician woman, Jesus was rough and coarse. With this man, Jesus was soft and gentle. Well, which is it? Which is the real Jesus? Both. You see, Jesus loves individuals. He sees people as individuals. He relates to them as individuals. He treats them differently because they are different. You know, if I was giving a a course, a program on evangelism, and I was Jesus' trainer, I probably would have tried to correct his approach to this uh, Phoenician woman, and I would have uh, affirmed and, and complimented on his approach to this deaf man. But you see, Jesus isn't doing a program. He's not refining a technique. He is honestly relating to human beings, individually, personally. Again, he treats them different because they are different. When he looked at this Phoenician woman, he saw a strong, secure woman who not only could handle this approach, but could best be reached by this approach, could best be loved by coming straight at her like this uh, with some playfulness and some courage. And when he saw this deaf man, he saw a tender and bruised reed that he did not want to break. And so he took him aside and was very gentle, very loving. Love required gentleness in that case. See, one of the problems with religiosity, with, with uh, focus on the rules, is that it tries to make everyone fit those rules, everyone fit that program, rather than relating to people as individuals. Now, scriptures are clear. They tell us to love. That's absolute. That is, we are instructed to do that. And if I fail to love, I am sinning. But in obeying that command to love, what does it mean? What do I do? Do I confront or do I comfort? Do I withhold or do I give? Do I stand in somebody's way or do I go along with them for a while to demonstrate my love and concern? Now, the answer to all these questions is yes or no, depending on the situation, depending on the person that you're dealing with, that you're loving depending on where God is leading. You see, we must relate to people as individuals, and we must depend on our Lord as an individual, personally, asking Him for the wisdom and strength, fortitude to love this person as this person. This cannot be formulized. I'm instructed in Scripture to raise my children in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. 
That's clear. That's a command. But what do I do? Now, does that mean that I, that, that, that I punish or I comfort? Do I spank or do I use timeouts or do I use positive rewards? Am I stern? Am I understanding? Again, the answer to those questions is yes or no. Depending on which of my daughters I'm dealing with, depending on what's been going on in her life, depending on what we're trying to accomplish, depending on where they are in their, their development. You see, in obeying that command, I am forced back to my relationship with my Lord and saying, God, help me. How do I do this? Give me wisdom. Give me the strength. I have to obey this. And for me to ignore it, for just out of laziness or, or rebellion, to refuse to love my children that way is sin. But I can't replace that relationship with that rule. I obey it by depending on Him for the wisdom and for the skill. We're told to share the gospel with those who haven't heard. What does that mean? Does that mean you live it in front of them for five years before you say a word? Or do you tell them the first time you meet them? Well, yes, no. Depending on the person, depending on the situation, depending on the relationship. We're called to, to minister to the needs of the saints in ministry. Does that mean you teach a Sunday school class or fill the communion cups once a month? Does that mean one hour? Does that mean 20 hours? Yes, no. Depending on what God calls you to do and your life situation. We're to give to the advance of the kingdom, to the needs of the saints. Does that mean 1% or 10% or 75%? Do I give to missions? Do I sponsor a child? You know, where I give, when I give, how much I give, how I give. All of these questions force me back to honest communication with my Lord and find out what He wants me to do with the resources He's given me. I have to look honestly at myself and my own situation. And I have to look at the needs of the individuals around me and respond to them as individuals. Again, the instructions of Scripture were never intended to replace that relationship with the Lord. The Scriptures, in a sense, are rules. The Scripture tells us things that are very clear, and we should obey those rules. And to disobey them is to disobey the one who is teaching us how to love in the first place. To disobey the Scriptures is, by definition, unloving. If we trust Him, we will do what He says. And if we do not do what He says, no matter what we say, we are demonstrating we don't trust Him. We don't have faith in Him. And that which is not done in faith is sin. But again... Those instructions were not intended to replace or to insulate us from that relationship with God if our response to the Scriptures ever separates us from God. We're dead. If we ever start looking at our walk with Him as a following of the rules rather than relating to Him, depending on Him, communicating with Him, within the context, within those instructions from Scripture... Uh, responding to Him is the key. Trusting Him is the key. And within those instructions of Scripture, then we must relate to each other, to unbelievers as individuals, and learn to listen, learn to observe. We learn to be honest and open and to perceive needs and come to our Lord and ask 
how he wants to meet those needs and whether he would use us to do that. We learn to relax in his wisdom and his strength. That's what this whole exciting adventure of walking with Jesus is all about. Now, some rules are valuable. Programs can help. We, rules sometimes come out of our experience. I may make a rule for myself. I want to read my Bible every day. Well, that's good. That's healthy. And programs can be put on that will help develop us and train us and teach us. That's wonderful. But even as we are following those rules, even as we are involved and benefiting from those programs, we cannot lose sight of what Paul said in Galatians six or 5, verse 6. The NIV version he says, The rules don't count. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And love is personal. It's individual. And that's the way our Lord loves us. He loves you as a person, as an individual. That's why you can't program His responses. That's why you can't program what He says and what He does. Because He's going to do for you what is loving. He's going to do for you what is good. He is not tame, but He is good. Let's pray. Lord, I confess that I so often get frustrated, confused, even angry and annoyed when I see things happening to people I love, when I deal with the things happening in my own life sometimes. Lord, we want to see you clearly, to hold on to the fact that you are good. Hold on long enough to see that goodness, even when it seems like you're not listening, when it feels like you're rejecting us. Lord, I thank you for your word. And that by looking past the superficial, we can see you clearly, and we can see how to really trust you, how to really find life rather than joyless, humorless death. Just give us the, the uh, courage of this woman, the, this uh, sense of humor, this willingness to accept you and to submit to you on your terms and see how much you love us. Lord, we praise you for your word. Ask that you build this into our lives, this responsiveness to you. Help us never to lose sight of that's what it's about. It's loving you, responding to you, trusting you, enjoying you. Pray this in your name. Amen.